Well, we, if you were here with us last week, we, we just finished a, a sort of mini-series on what it means to be judgmental, uh, that judging uh, normally taken to be something really bad is not all bad, in fact, very good, and can be done very well, and uh, that's what we kind of looked through in the past uh, three messages on, on, on judge, judgment. But I wanted to do something different today. What we're going to look at is something I think is just very practical. Very practical because all of us do it, and all of us need to probably think more about when we do it and how we do it. And um, so I want to take today, next week we'll be on missions, but the week after we'll come back and look at it a little more practically. But I want us to look at today the issue of what we call venting. Venting. Venting is that term that's used to describe the letting out of strong emotions over a particular situation. When you rant or when you rave to your spouse or maybe to your close friends about what had just happened, what that person just said or did, or how your boss was treating you, we vent. We're said to be venting. You know, we have a, a rice cooker at home, like probably many of you do, and it's, it's kind of those, those Korean ones where, you know, it, it, as it cooks the rice, it, it speaks, it says things, and I thought that was kind of cool, but you know how rice workers, it's, it's a pressure cooker, and as the rice begins to cook, the pressure inside builds up and you can start, as it gets finished, the steam starts pulling out and you know it's done because the pressure cooker whistles. It just, you know, really loud. It's come to its peak and you know that's when it's done. That's where the term venting comes from. It's the idea of this outlet of air or liquid or stream and when we express our strong emotions through words, maybe even writing or physical aggression even, we are venting. Uh, we are like that pressure cooker that's been building up and, and, and the time comes and now we just let it out and steam and whistling and all the stuff and the words and the emotions all start flowing out, right? Uh, venting can be harmless. In fact, I think there is a good place for venting. Uh, venting can be a process where built up emotion and passion over an event or conversation can help us be, help us help us to process that. Venting can uh, allow us to uh, calm down and maybe return to our rational thinking once we've finished. Venting can be helpful to process our feelings and even strengthen relationships with those that we vent with, right? So I, I, I think there's a, a place for it. But having said that, we also need to be careful when we vent or, or how we vent because as helpful or even as needed as it might be, it can also very easily and quickly lead us to a kind of self-destructiveness, a kind of hurtfulness, and even a kind of sinfulness. And there's a fine line between, you know, good venting and not so good venting, right? Is there a place for venting in our lives? Yes, there is. And we all do it, okay? But there's also an awareness about ourselves and an awareness about those we are venting to that also needs to be had. Is there a good way to vent, a way that we can be honest and real about our feelings and situations and yet not cross that fine line into kind of destructiveness or hurtfulness or even sinfulness? And I think, I think there is. And I wanted to look at Psalm 13, and I've looked at this before, and I wanted to take it through the side door of how this passage gives you an example of good venting. David wrote the psalm. King David, you remember King David. King David, the man after God's own heart, is seriously venting here. Uh, because he's got serious situations he's going on. He, he's got serious questions he has. 
and he's really venting. You know, I came to this passage many times, and you, when you study a passage in the Bible, you think you know it. You think you know what it's all about. But what I'm going to share is not just what I've learned, but also what I personally have experienced as I relate with David as he vents. What do you do in these situations in a tough moment? What do you do, especially when you are praying for something and you feel like you're not getting any answers? Or at least the answers you want. Or worse, what do you do when you feel like no one's listening? Or even that God has forgotten you? And so in Psalm 13, I see three things that David shows us about a response that we as Christians make in times like this. And it, I think it also gives us a picture of a more of a godly kind of venting, all right? First, three things. First, verse 1 and 2, David questions God. Verse 3 and 4, David calls out God. And then verse 5 and 6, David draws a conclusion about God. He questions God, he calls him out, and he draws a conclusion. All right, so let's look at this. First, verse 1 and 2, David questions God. Psalm 13 is an individual lament. It's about a person who's in a circumstance where he can't seem to bear it anymore. He's on the verge of despair, and his strength and his powers are spent. And it's King David. It's David who's writing this. And he questions God. I mean, we question one another. But can you imagine? He's questioning God. Right? If there's a God, he's the creator of the world. He doesn't have to answer you. But he questions him with this one question. How long? How long, O Lord? In fact, in just these two verses, that phrase, how long, is repeated four times. And the sense you get as you read this is that David's not just curious here. He's not asking out of curiosity. He, he's in anguish. He's in anguish. He's in, he's in a crisis. And this question, how long, it, it's a popular one in the book of Psalms. It's repeated four times here, nearly 20 times in the book of Psalms. Charles Spurgeon, who looked at this passage, used to say this, that if you keep saying how long, how long, how long, it sounds like howling. Howling. And doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Because at this point, the question here that David is asking is not, he's not asking for just a bit of information. But behind the question is this feeling of being unable to endure it any longer. And you're literally howling for God's mercy, his grace, for an answer, for him to just do something. How long, David says. How long? And I think he's starting to vent. When is this going to end? I can't take this anymore. I think he's not just asking, he's venting. He's the pressure cooker that's kind of whistling right here in verses 1 to 5. And as David asked this question, I think he has a deep desire for God's answer. When we ask how long like this, it reveals a feeling that whatever we're going through has already lasted too long. And our ability to hang on is now put to the test. We can usually handle short-term experiences. You know, we say, oh, it's just a bump in the road. But sometimes we begin to wonder when the short-term feels like long-term. What is God doing? Why isn't he answering my prayers? Why isn't he helping me? You ever feel like this? You know, I... And this is, this is where my personal experience comes in. You know, I've been feeling crappy for the past over 10 months now. 10 months, 
and it's gotten better from the very beginning. Very beginning, I couldn't even move. I was bedridden for almost a couple of months. I, I had no idea what was going on. There was a point where I thought I had multiple sclerosis because of the brain image that they did. And, and I looked it up, and it was crazy scary. And let me explain to you how, that, how that, the emotions work. When you hear about something terrible like that, the first thing that comes in is fear. What is this? Fear, what's going to happen? And then you go into worry. You go into worry and you start becoming anxious. But the worry, at least for me, turned into frustration. Why now? Why? And the frustration during those times moved into anger. Anger. What did I do to deserve this? What did I do? What did I do? And the anger then turned to apathy. Whatever. God. I prayed and I prayed. And it's not going to get over. It's not going to be done. Still struggling with it. Every day is like everything's an extra effort for me now. And it's just, I look normal on the outside, but in my head, I'm crazy. <laughs> it's just things aren't, there's something broken. There's a nerve damage, they say. I don't, I don't know what the doctors are telling me. Whatever. Sometimes you hear about how God answers prayers of people and, or in the Bible or of loved ones and even strangers. And you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I've been praying a lot. I've been going to church. I've been serving. I haven't done anything terrible. I've been going through this longer than they have. My situation's a lot worse than theirs. What is going on? And you start feeling with respect to God. You, you wonder if, if he's even there. Because if he is, he's not listening. Or worse, maybe he doesn't care. Every Sunday after sir, at the end of the service, I end with a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and be merciful to you. To have God's face means you got favor and blessing. To have him look upon you is to receive grace. To get face time with God means peace. That's what that blessing means. But look at verse 1. Look at what David says. How long will you hide your face from me? No face time with God. No blessing. No grace. No peace. I don't have his attention. That's what it feels like. He's not moving, he's not doing anything, and so we're waiting, and we're just waiting, and we feel like we're drying up, and we're just ready to blow away. You hear the vent? He's venting. You see it? David, King David, man after God's own heart, is venting. And I can't help but sense a, a bit of frustration, maybe even anger against the God that he says he loves. How long? What are you doing? Are you going to forget me? Verse 1. Are you going to just leave me alone and let me, let me suffer? Verse 2. Are you going to let my enemies just take me over? Why? Why? And this is the danger here. This is where we're at a dangerous point when we vent like this. When you vent like this, there is this temptation to, to have this thing turn into something that's corrosive and even toxic. It begins to eat away at your soul and you begin to question yourself. 
you, 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 you've been so much like this. What happens, what, what could happen, you just stop. You stop waiting. You stop asking. You stop praying. And it stops your faith. And even sometimes in our frustrations and our anger, we almost want to recant our faith. Kind of our way of getting back at God for not doing what we think he's supposed to do. Or at least letting something happen that we think shouldn't happen. I'm not going to serve you anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to worship you anymore. And that, that, it's, it's a downward spiral. If I maintain faith, I, I feel more tortured because I'm always wondering if I'm ever going to get rescued. If I recant my faith, at least it stops the torture of wondering and waiting. And I can take matters into my own hands. And at least I'll be free to be my own rescuer. Friends, I speak from experience. The downward spiral of faith. What do you do when you feel like your prayer is not working? What do you do when you feel like God isn't doing anything I know what I usually do. I come up with plan B. God was plan A. He's not coming through. So I'm going to pull together plan B. I pull together and the plan seems right to me. And that's what David's doing too. Verse 2. How long shall I counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? And what verse 2 means is this. He's counseling in my soul. Literally counseling himself. He's just advising himself. He's making his own plans. But the problem for David was this. That the results of his own plans aren't that great either. It, it seems, in fact, worse. And so that's why he says, there's sorrow in my heart all the day. And what we see in David is that even though it's really tough, even though he questions God, even though he waits with grief, with yearning, howling out how long, how long, sometimes, sometimes it's just better to wait than to go with plan B. Because plan B might bring you sorrow all the day. And that's why it's so hard. David is struggling. And he's not just struggling with his situation. He's struggling with his faith, okay? David questions God. Second point. David calls out to God. So what does he do? I think he knows he's struggling. So verse 3, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The question in verse 1 and 2 becomes a call. Consider me. Answer me. Light up my eyes. He, he's very straightforward in this prayer. What's he asking? He's saying this. Pay attention, God. Listen to me. Look at my need. And his prayer is so driven. He's just saying, answer me. And he's not just looking for an answer. He's saying, Show me something. Do for me what I can't do for myself. My plan B didn't work. I've got nowhere else to go. So pay attention to me. Hear me. It's, it's, it's a pretty bold prayer. And he's particularly asking God, lighten up my eyes, he says. Lighten up my eyes. Why? Because dark eyes can't see. Light ones do. And what he's saying is, Light my eyes so that I can see you. Let the eyes of my faith be clear so that I can see you, that you're there. And isn't this what we need? In a time where it seems like you just can't see God, or you can't see what he's doing. You're wondering if he's there, and you're wondering if he cares. 
You know, let me tell you something else. You move from fear, you go to worry, you go to frustration, you go to anger, it turns into apathy. But there's one more step, depression. It gets dark. You're depressed. So when David prays, light of my eyes, he's not saying, well, let me see the answer. Let me know why you do things. He's saying, let me see you. If I don't see you, I will sleep the sleep of death. That's what David said. David wants to know that God is still with him in his situation. Let me ask you a serious question. Do you want God or do you just want what God could do for you? If you only want what you think God could do for you and he doesn't come through, will you still want God? And if you don't, it means that you've probably been following God for all the wrong reasons. For the wrong reasons. So David's calling out to him, answer me, do something, answer me, listen to me. And lastly, third point, he finally draws a conclusion in verse 5 and 6. Verse 1 and 2, he's going to God with this question. Verse 3 and 4, he's calling out to God, lighten up my eyes, let me know you're there. And verse 5 and 6, he's drawing a conclusion. Okay, he's coming to the end of his vent, and let's look at how he does this, all right? Verse 5 says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. His conclusion, his result is ultimately to just keep trusting in God. And the question is how? Why would he even bother? He still doesn't know the answer. He still doesn't know the time when it's all going to be done. He doesn't know how it's going to finish. He doesn't know when or where or how the, or the place is going to be. He says he's going to keep trusting that God is still there and with him. Why? And the answer is in verse 6. Because he concludes, he has dealt bountifully with me. Because of what God has already shown to him in his past. You know, I'll just share. Through my own personal experience, I really has one thing. I, I am not strong at all. I am, my faith is oftentimes not as strong as I thought it was. And, uh, you know, maybe four or five months ago, I was in bed, and I was like, I'm going to die. Right? Just let me die. That's what I said. I'm, I can't take this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I can't, I can't keep doing this, right? And I was just angry. I was just, I was just upset and angry. And I was like, God, you know, just, you know, if you're going to just take me, do it now. Right? My, my family would probably be better without me anyway. <laughs> so just do it. Just do it now. And, and, and for that brief moment, you know, as, 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 as this tears started rolling down my eyes, I, I began to look at my life. And I realized God had given me good parents. I was born into a, uh, a loving family. I was fortunate to have two mom, uh, two dads. I mean, not two dads, but you know, a mom and a dad, two parents. Okay, <laughs> I'm not I'm not that liberal, but uh, they did everything they can to give me the life. Uh, they sent me to college. They paid for it. In college, I didn't know what I was going to do, and and somehow God led me to seminary. I met a wonderful wife. I, I was given two beautiful kids. 
He made me go into ministry and a pastorate. He gave me a church with people who care and who love for me and pray for me. For just that moment, my eyes were lit up and I realized how good God has been to me. And the crazy thing is, I didn't do anything to deserve it. Didn't do anything to deserve it. He has dealt bountifully with me. And for a brief moment, the eyes of my faith were lit up. God has been good. Next week, I went back to anger and depression. <laughs> but, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. But hasn't that been the case many times, that in our past experiences like this with God, the blessings that we've been given and that we even don't even thankful, give thanks for, haven't we learned that as we look into the rearview mirror, that in our times of questioning and doubt and waiting, in times where it seemed like God would never end, that maybe he did do something? That at the very least, he was working in your heart, that maybe he was doing something that you just couldn't see in the moment, that maybe through that tough experience, rather than just giving you what you thought was the obvious and easy solution, to lighten up your eyes so that you might see your faith, or at least maybe a lack of faith, that you need God, not just to kind of believe in, but to really need him, to cling to, depend, to strengthen your resolve. I mean, does an athlete learn endurance without any sweat or pain? I mean, does a, does a person learn to depend and trust in someone when things are going well or when things are going tough? When does a Christian learn to cry out to God, like Psalm 13, when things are going well for you or when things are going bad? Helen Keller said this, quote, We can never learn to be brave and patient if there was only joy in the well. End quote. And this is the missing piece Many times in our exercise of faith, in our practice of venting, at some point, we have to see the evidence of God's goodness and faithfulness in our past. Not everything was good in the past, maybe, but there have been good things in your past too. Where does David draw his confidence from? I mean, the whole passage is is with it. How long, O Lord? That word Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh. It's a personal name. It's personal. There's a relationship. It's God's covenant name. He says in verse 5, I've trusted in your steadfast love. Literally, that love is hesed in Hebrew. It's, It's a covenant word. It means there's a relationship. And it doesn't describe any kind of love, but a faithful, promise keeping love for him. In other words, this is what David did. In the midst of his struggling and doubting and frustration, David is banking on, he's trusting in his relationship with God who made promises in the past to keep those promises in the future so that David could endure the trials in the present. This is what faith does. Faith's job is to join hands with the good things in your past The promise of the good in the future so that you can hold down God's will right now in the present. And so we need to draw the conclusion that God is there. He is working. He sometimes gives. He sometimes takes away. But I will pray 
I will call out. I will vent to him. I will ask him how long. And I will ask for answers. But I will keep trusting and believing and depending. Trusting in God's future goodness. Because of his past goodness. That's what Jesus did. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus present, he's dying. He's dying on a cross, suffering, nothing but suffering. Why? Because he's made promises in the past. Why? Because the joy set before him in the future guarantees it in what he does. He endured the pain because of the promises made in the past and the future that he's securing. You have every reason to be patient and endure because God has kept his promises. He did it in a way that you can't imagine. Look at what he's done for you in your past, not just your, your personal past, but even before, that he went to the cross for you. Why? To guarantee a future for you, not a temporary one, but an eternal one. That's got to mean something to you even as you struggle now. Remember in moments like these, in moments of your venting, patience. Patience is not just the ability to wait. Patience is how you behave while you're waiting. With enduring faith, that's what we do. We join the past with the future and endure this present, even though we just don't understand why and know all the time the answer. possible look at verse 6 at the end of our passage what does he do he doesn't just trust David sings is that possible to sing to still praise God even when you're going through this difficult moment and have hard questions even though you don't have all the answers David sings this whole song Psalm 13 Let me end with this one example. <clears throat> There's a man named Horatio. Horatio Spafford uh, lived in the 19th century, 1800s. So he, he became a lawyer. He was a successful lawyer and, and a, a great businessman in Chicago. Right? Great, great person. And married a wife. His name, her name was Anna. They had five kids. They had four daughters and, and one son. But the thing is, let me listen to, if you think you have it tough, listen to this guy. His son, his only son, died of pneumonia in 1871. And in that same year, he lost his whole business in the Great Chicago Fire. Right? That, that's hard enough. But two years later, just two years after that, they were going to take a family trip to Europe. And back then, they didn't fly. They, had, they took the boat. But he had to take care of some business, so he sent his family, at this point, his wife and his four daughters first, and he said, I'll meet you there. Anna and the daughters, the four daughters, went on the boat. But the thing is, the boat has an accident along the way. The ship goes down, and he loses. Two years later, he loses all four of his daughters. He lost his son. He lost his job. He lost all four of his daughters. The wife was saved, floating on a derbis. And as soon as she could, she wires a message to her husband, and it began like this. It was a famous uh, message. It began like this. Saved alone, what shall I do? 
And she said, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. So Horatio gets the message. He takes the next ship towards Europe to be with his wife, his grieving wife. He books the next ship there. And according to their fifth daughter, who was born much after this tragedy, Horatio writes a song as he sails past the place where the accident happened. And the song goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. You can vent. You can vent to God. But remember this. God has dealt bountifully with you in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Let's pray.